0: Well, hey, good morning to you, Grace. It's great to see you today. Uh, Would you turn in your Bibles to Daniel, the book of Daniel in your Old Testament? It's kind of in the middle. Move over a few books to your right. If you open in the middle, you get a P, a P book, Psalms or (laughs) Proverbs, and then just move to your right a little bit, and some long ones, some little ones, and you'll finally get to Daniel chapter two. The book um, increases in its excitement. It crescendos. And so, if you've liked the last couple of weeks, you're going to love today, and the next couple of weeks are going to be great. If you don't normally use your Bible on a Sunday morning because you rely on me to read it or it's up on the screen, you're going to want to read it from your Bible today. So, we're in Daniel. Um, who do you think wrote the book of Daniel? No, no answer is a dumb answer. Who do you think wrote the book of Daniel? Any ideas? Yeah, you're like hesitant. Why would he ask us that question? Yeah, I mean, you'd think that Daniel wrote the book of Daniel. But did you know that there are not very many people who believe that? Uh, Most scholars believe that someone other than Daniel wrote the book of Daniel. And the reason that that is, is because of the chapter that we are reading today. Today, Daniel, living in 600 BC, talks about the Medo-Persian Empire, which was not even a thing when he was alive. Then he talks about the Greek Empire, you know, Alexander the Great. He talks about that empire, which was long after Daniel lived. He talks about the Roman Empire, which was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after Daniel lived. And so you can see why it'd be kind of hard to believe That Daniel wrote this book about all these details about things that happened up to a thousand years after he was alive. How could that even be? Now, I happen to, now I'm no scholar. (laughs) I happen to be one of the few that believe that Daniel actually wrote the book of Daniel. And I want to show you a couple simple reasons why I believe that. And then I want to show you the chapter that is causing all the confusion. In Daniel chapter 7, you don't need to look these up. We're going to move through these real fast. Daniel chapter 7, verse 15. I want to just show you some reasons why I happen to believe that Daniel in 600 BC wrote the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 15, it says, as for me, Daniel my spirit was distressed within me. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 28, it says, at this point, the revelation ended, as for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming to me. Now, the… I could go through a whole lot of them, but I'm just going to hit one per chapter, okay? Who wrote this book? Daniel chapter 8, verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. Who wrote this book? He gave to me instruction and talked with me and said, so someone is giving the author of this book that we're reading today some instruction. And this is what that person said. He said, oh, Daniel. Daniel. I have now come forth to give to you insight with understanding. Who wrote the book of Daniel? Daniel chapter 10, verse 2. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal them up in the book until the end of time. Now, after reading just that short list, who do you think wrote the book of Daniel? Daniel. You're obviously not scholars either. (laughs) The only people that believe that this book was actually typed out on Daniel's laptop in 605 B.C. are people who believe that the Bible is God's inspired word. It has to be. It has to be that way because of today's chapter. For these two things to be true, Daniel living in 605 B.C. and... For him to be writing about things that are th- a thousand years after he's alive, it has to be that God revealed to him things that he did not know, and that is called prophecy. And that's what we are going to be studying today. Now I want to show you <laughs> what happens in, uh, in this chapter, why we're talking about it like that. You remember Daniel, is 14 years old. You rem- remember all the hormones that were pulsing through your veins when you were 14 years old? Well, he was taken as a hostage to Babylon to train to be a wise man at Babylon University, and he was there for three years. And his job was going to be acclimating the rest of the Jews to this new way of life. Babylon had taken over the entire known world, and that was the world. So he was learning the culture, he was learning the language, he was learning the the religion so that he could help all of the other Jews that were falling under this captivity, under the slavery of Babylon, that they could get used to this new culture, two. Now, he was a teenager at the time, but he loved God anyway. And you remember from last week in Daniel chapter two, verse one, the king, Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream. And in verse one, it said, now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. You remember the dream from last week? He has this dream, out of the dreamy mist comes this giant statue, this giant figure, huge, ominous, uh, frightening. It had a head of gold, and it had a chest and and arms of silver, had a belly of bronze, it had legs of iron and feet mixed with iron and clay. And then, all of a sudden, this giant rock, bigger than any human could ever cut, comes flying out of nowhere, crushes this multi-metaled statue into dust, and the dust blows away. And Nebuchadnezzar wakes up sweaty, sweat. You know, it's one of those dreams. Because he thinks this has something to do with him. And he's right. You also remember from last week that that Daniel had been given a gift by God, the ability to understand and interpret dreams, because this was one of the ways that God communicated before the Bible was through dreams of the prophets. And so, Daniel had this ability to, to understand these dreams. And so, the verse we ended on last week, Daniel was talking to Nebuchadnezzar. He wanted to know what it was, what the dream meant. He said, hey, if any of you wise men can tell me what it is, hey, you're going to get wealth, you're going to get prosperity, you're going to get a high position, and if nobody can tell me, you all die. But here's what Daniel says after prayer. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. and God had revealed to Daniel what this dream was about. And Daniel says in verse 28, he, meaning God, has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. Meaning he's told you, Nebuchadnezzar, what's going to happen in the future after today. Oh man, this is where it gets cut. Here we go. Daniel chapter two, verse 31. This is what Daniel tells him about his dream. Daniel 2 verse 31, "'You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue, that statue which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay.'" You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them then the iron the clay the bronze the silver and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar the dream, and it's a dream about this multi-metaled statue. Now, this multi-metaled statue represents the Gentile rule of Israel for the rest of time, and that's what this dream, this vision represents. The Gentile rule, the Gentile oppression of Jews from Nebuchadnezzar when he rolled through Daniel's little town and took him as a hostage and all the other little towns all the way through time. All of the Gentile rule where they will be slaves to all these Gentile nations over time, that is what this represents. And so this dream covers from 600 BC all the way into the future of time that has not even happened yet today, okay? And so since this statue, I don't know what it really looked like, but this is what I imagine it looked like, okay? And so since this statue represents the ruling nations that oppressed Israel and will oppress Israel through time. There's just a couple things I want to note about it first before we get into what each of those metals mean. First, you'll notice that the metal value decreases. Gold is more valuable than silver, silver more valuable than bronze, bronze more valuable than iron. The, The leadership of these nations, the quality of these leaders in these nations over time will decrease in quality. The leadership of these Gentile nations that that oppress uh, the Jews through human history, the quality of that leadership will decrease over time, And another thing that you notice, even though the value of the metals decrease over time, I don't know if you've noticed this, but the strength of those metals increase. Silver is stronger than gold. Bronze, stronger than silver. Iron, stronger than bronze. Bronze. And so even though the, the leadership quality decreases over time, the military might, the strength of these nations over time increases. It almost has to be that way for them to maintain leadership of the Jews and to, to maintain the oppression as the quality of leadership drops, the force increases. That makes sense? Maybe you have like a boss like that at work you know. They're a bad leader, and so they just force you to follow them, you know. Some great leaders don't need the force. People want to follow them. Uh, But as the leadership quality drops in these nations over the history of time, the military strength and might to maintain that oppression increases. And the last thing to note, the third thing to note, uh, before we go through the details here is that this is a top heavy statue it 's top heavy gold is, and silver are much heavier and much stronger and and much weightier than than feet of clay and iron and This simply describes that over the, the time in history. As the world approaches the end of the end, as the world approaches what we know as the apocalypse, as, what, as our world gets closer to the time of Jesus' second coming, things will become more and more and more unstable. Maybe you've already seen that in our culture today, haven't you? Okay. So, now that we kind of understand a few basics about this statue and this, this dream and some o- overarching ideas, let's look at the specifics. Daniel tells us what each one of these metal parts of the statue represents. Look at verse 36 of Daniel 2. This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. So who does this head of gold represent? Nebuchadnezzar, all right. And I think Nebuchadnezzar sits up a little taller in his throne when he hears this. Yeah, I knew this had to do with me. I knew knew this one was about me. And Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold for sure. There has never been a leader for all of time that has had the absolute power and absolute influence that Nebuchadnezzar has had. There never will be one either until Jesus comes back. Absolute and complete power, okay? Now, his pride, I don't think, lasted very long because in verse 39, at the beginning it says, after you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. Now, this is where things get unbelievable for the scholars because now Daniel talks about things that are coming in the future that ha- have not happened yet, okay? And so, who comes after Babylon? Who comes after Nebuchadnezzar? Well, that's the Medo-Persian Empire. In 538 BC, the the Medes and the Persians. There's detail in Daniel about how that happens and about who that happens to. Uh, But the Medes and the Persians, history and archaeology tells us that there's two, these two groups, they get together, the Medes and the Persians, the two arms, you know, arms of silver. The two arms are joined together in the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, they're described as a more inferior nation than the nation of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar as the gold head. And the reason that they're more inferior is because the kings of the Persian Mede Empire, the kings were subject to their own laws. The king had to submit to the laws of the Medes and the Persians. Well, Nebuchadnezzar never had to do that. He was superior over it all. And so that's what would make the Medes and the Persians an uh, inferior nation. But the Medo-Persian empire was going to conquer Babylon in the future. And I think uh, Nebuchadnezzar's thinking, okay, okay. I'm going to cut Daniel's head off as soon as I hear the end of this dream. (laughs) The rest of verse 39 tells us more, though. The first part of verse 39 says, After you, there will rise another kingdom inferior to you, meaning another kingdom, the Medes and the Persians, will take you over, will conquer you, and now Israel is under the Medes and the Persians. And then it says, Then another third kingdom of bronze which will rule over all the earth. So now another nation is going to conquer the Medes and the Persians. Well, who is that? Well, that's Greece. That's Alexander the Great when he's 33 years old, comes and he, he demolishes the Medes and the Persians. Interesting fact. Alexander the Great used bronze implements of, of spears and swords and bazookas. He used, he, he used, a, he used bronze of those. It gets interesting. That is way after, hundreds of years after this prophecy right here, he's being the, the belly of bronze. And he used bronze. That is a very interesting little part there. And so, in 331 BC, Alexander the Great, comes and demolishes the Medes and the Persians, and that it's the two, the two thighs, those are the two great generals of Alexander the Great. There's a lot of history all written in uh, all of these words. Now, now, everything here is already in the history books. We can already read about this, okay? What's next? Verse 40, we have the legs of iron, right? Okay, then there will be a fourth kingdom, Strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all of these pieces. Remember, these are the nations, the Gentile nations that uh, suppress, that oppress, that uh, keep Israel in captivity, in, in slavery. And so, this is representing the Roman Empire, And you're familiar with the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire launched uh, about 25 years before Jesus came on the scene, before he was born in Bethlehem. And so this is the Roman Empire that you're familiar with in the New Testament. When the, the Jews say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they called him the king of the Jews. They wanted Jesus to come and set up his kingdom to demolish all of these nations that had oppressed them for so long. The problem is, is they didn't know that there was more to the statue. There's more coming before that happens, but this is the Roman Empire. Now, like I say, all of these are in history books. None of this is disputed. That's why I'm not spending too much time on this. None of this is disputed, okay? But this is why the scholars don't believe that Daniel could have written any of this in 605 BC when none of these nations even existed. It had to have been somebody We're writing this after the time of Jesus, somewhere in the first century, maybe the second century, about Daniel and all that happened there, because it's just too accurate. And we're going to find the accuracy increases. Daniel, well, God through Daniel, gets things accurate to the day, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after Daniel dies. Now, the rest of this dream is still in the future. When I mean the future, the future for us today the rest has not happened yet. We're, we're somewhere in this dream. The rest has not even happened yet. So what is the, the feet mixed with iron and clay? Verse 41, in that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom It will have in its toughness of iron in as much as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine With pottery. So, what kingdom, what empire is the feet, the the ten toes mixed with iron and clay? What does that represent? Well, that represents the Antichrist's empire. That represents the time still yet in the future. We know that as the time of the tribulation, the seven year tribulation period where uh, the Antichrist, driven by Satan, will come and try to kill every single Jew on planet Earth. That has always been Satan's goal, and it will continue to be his goal, even in the tribulation. And this will be the last of the empire that tried to demolish and try to kill off all of the, the Jews. Now, it mentions the feet and the toes. How many toes do you have? It should be ten, Okay. I had a friend in high school, his name was Ralph, he didn't have 10 toes, he had less than 10 toes. You want to know why he had less than 10 toes? He got ran over by a city bus. No joke, there's more to that story, but we got to keep going, okay? But, but this isn't Ralph's toes, this is everybody else's toes, 10 of them, okay? Now, those of you who are aficionados of the book of Revelation, Revelation tells, gives us more detail, puts more of the puzzle pieces together about the future. And in Revelation chapter 17, it tells us what the ten toes are. In Revelation 17 verse 12, it says, The ten horns. This is just symbolism going all the way back, really representing the ten toes. In Revelation, it's the ten horns of a different thing. We'll get to that someday in the future. The ten horns, which you saw, are what? Are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they re- receive authority as kings with the beast, meaning the Antichrist, for one hour. These have one purpose that they give their power and their authority to the beast. The world will be divided into ten kingdoms, all headed by one, the Antichrist, and all of those kings really submit up to the Antichrist as one world leader of the entire world during the tribulation time. That is the ten toes of the feet of this statue. Now, the dream isn't over, is it? The dream's not over. There's still more coming. This, uh, this giant thing gets knocked over, all right? It, it, it falls over, okay? Because of something. Look at verse 44. In the days of the kings, in the, in the days of what kings? Those 10 kings, those 10 toes, okay? In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all the kingdoms, no more, this is my added commentary, no more oppression of the Jews once this happens. No more Gentile rule over the Jews once this happens. It will not be left for another people, verse 4. It will crush and put it into all these kingdoms, but, but it itself will endure forever, verse 45, inasmuch as you saw a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king, to King Nebuchadnezzar, what will take place in the future so The dream is true and its interpretation is is trustworthy. And so what knocks over this giant image, Dwayne Johnson? (laughs) The rock. The rock just comes flying out of nowhere and knocks it right over. No, the the rock. Rock comes out of nowhere. And so what is this rock? represent this rock that, that destroys the Gentile domination of Jews for all time. What does that rock represent? Well, it represents Jesus Christ's second coming, his second coming. Now, this is not referring to the rapture. The rapture is not the second coming. The first coming was when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Now, you remember that part? And in between Jesus' first coming and his second coming will be what is known as the rapture. It's like his, his one and a half coming. He comes halfway back. And he takes all of Christians off of planet earth. All those who have been dead and alive will be taken up into heaven. That is known as the rapture. That is before that tribulation period. Before the Antichrist empire. And then launches the Antichrist empire for seven years. And at the end of that seven year domination of the Jews. The intent is to kill every single one of them. Jesus Christ comes aback for a second time. And this time, it's not as a baby. This time, it is in a battle. It's called the Battle of Armageddon. And maybe you're familiar with that, with that term. In Hebrew, it's har Dash Har-Mageddon. And Jesus comes and he destroys the Antichrist. He destroys the evil in the world. And he rescues all the believers who have been faithful to him, and at jesus second coming, once he, he, he beats the, the oppressive rule of the Antichrist empire, he sets up his own empire. and Jesus sets up his own kingdom. Uh, the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And it will be at this kingdom where Jesus fulfills all the promises that we have read about in the Old Testament. Fulfills all the promises that have been made to Abraham and all of his people for all of time. And, and, and they're waiting around, when is this going to be fulfilled? They were hoping that it was going to happen when Jesus came the, the first time. But that wasn't time yet. Feet mixed with clay hadn't happened yet. In the millennial kingdom, Jesus will keep all of the promises will fulfill all of the prophecies of the Old Testament in that millennial kingdom. Now, remember, Daniel is telling all of this to King Nebuchadnezzar, and the king had absolute power; could have just killed him off. I don't like the news of me being conquered. Remember, I mean, it goes. Nebuchadnezzar is relatively narcissistic, like most people, and he realizes he is going to get conquered, and he could have killed Daniel off. But that's not what he did. Look at verse forty-six. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present Daniel an offering and fragrant incense. First he worships Daniel. <laughs> and then verse 47, the king answered Daniel and said, surely your God is a God of gods, a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. So first he worships Daniel, then he worships Daniel's God. Nebuchadnezzar does not become a believer here, but these are the seeds of that. These are the seeds of that. Nebuchadnezzar is going to put his faith in God at some point in time. We'll see that in a few weeks. Verse 48, then the king promoted Daniel. Remember, that was one of the agreements. If you could tell me what the dream is and give me its interpretation, then you get then you get power. And notice where Nebuchadnezzar put Daniel. And the king promoted Daniel and gave him many gifts, and he made Daniel ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. He became like the governor of Babylon, the largest, most powerful, most beautiful, most wealthy city in the entire world. Daniel's now the governor of that city. And then check this out. I love 49. Never, never forget your friends, okay? Then Daniel made a request to the king. He, he, he talked to Nebuchadnezzar about something. It says, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. So while Daniel was off on business, who was running Babylon? Those, those other three godly men. There are four godly men who are leading in this nation that has just come and is the head of gold in oppression (laughs) over the Jews. Man, that is such a a wild, now now you can see why scholars have a hard time with this. I mean, this, this is a lot, there's a lot here in all of this. And maybe you might be wondering, why does a prophecy like this come at a time like this? Why would God tell Israel you are going to be oppressed for thousands of years? Why, why do that? Why? They can't fix it. They can't do anything about it. It, it. it is going to be that way no matter what. This is obviously a part of God's grand plan. Why would God have this dream given to Nebuchadnezzar so that all of the Jews could hear about this? Think of what's happened already to the nation of Israel. Jerusalem has been demolished. The, The temple has been torn down. All of those implements, you know, the vessels in the temple have all been removed from the temple and are now being used in worship to the weird Babylonian gods Ezekiel 11 tells us that the glory of God had departed from the people at this point in time. Does God just like want to rub their face in it? Why would God do this? This was a very depressing time for Israel, for the Jews. In Psalm, Psalm gives us a highlight, Psalm 137 gives us insight into their perspective of what was happening at the time. And this is what it says in Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the, in the midst of it, we hung our harps. For there our captors demanded of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of those songs of Zion. But how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Had God forgotten his people? Was this it? Had God abandoned all of them? Could God not keep his word? That's what they were feeling at the moment. But the title to my sermon is not, Don't Forget the, the Statue. The title of my sermon is, It's All About the Rock. It's All About the Rock. That is the point of this vision. That is the point of this dream, that God still keeps His promises. He wanted to remind Israel that even though things were so bad now, this was not the end. Even though things are so tragic, and even though things are what you would never have imagined them to be, this is not the end. There is still more to come. Now, some of that is a little bit disappointing because it's such a long time, but God will keep his promises. Maybe not in the timing that you imagine, but God will keep his promises. Every single promise, and God still has credibility. That is the purpose of this vision. It's about the rock. It's not about the statue. And the same is true for us, too. The application is still, maybe you're a Christian, you know you're going to heaven, but all of this talk about the, the future, the, the end times, things getting worse and worse over time, the tribulation, the Antichrist, it makes you feel kind of weird, it makes you feel nervous, um, makes you feel worried. Focus on the rock. The point of the vision is the rock, is that Jesus has not forgotten us, that Jesus has not forgotten where you are. It is all under God's control. Everything that you read in the press enterprise is under God's control. Everything that you see on CNN is still under God's control, even though the quality of leadership is decreasing. And I think we can see that in the world today, can't we? The quality of leadership is decreasing. But this is all a part of God's plan. The military might in our world is increasing at an ever increasing rate. All of this is a part of God's plan. This vision isn't about the statue, the point is the rock. Jesus has not forgotten us. He has not forgotten his promises to the Jews in the Old Testament. He has not forgotten where you are. And Jesus will come back again. He will take all of Christians off of planet earth and give them glorified bodies. He will allow Satan one last time. And finally, he will come and he will redeem the entire world in the millennial kingdom. And so, it's about the rock. It's not about the statue. Now, you might be wondering, well, how come God hasn't done this yet? (laughs) Why hasn't any of this happened yet? Well, a lot of it has already happened, hasn't it? The Nebuchadnezzar, the Medo-Persian Empire, Alexander the Great, the Roman Empire. What makes us think that the rest of those things aren't going to happen? It's just not in the time that we imagine. But why not? How come God just can't come now? Why can't he just do it now? It's been 2,000 years since the Roman Empire. Why, Why can't this happen now? The Bible tells us why this hasn't happened yet, why the Antichrist empire has not come yet, why the tribulation has not come yet, why Jesus' second coming has not come yet. And I want to show you why. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, this is why it hasn't happened yet. But it will, but why it hasn't happened yet. The Bible says that the Lord is not slow about His promise. What promise? The promise about the, the rapture, the promise about the tribulation, the promise about Jesus' second coming, the promise about the millennium. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but He is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. This is why the, the ten toes haven't come yet, because... He wants people to go to heaven, not hell. That's why he's patient. This is God's grace. This is his his mercy in waiting so that more people can put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. This is how I know that God wants people to go to heaven, not hell. It's because it hasn't happened yet. And what's he patient for? He's patient for you. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus, he is is patient, waiting for you to tell your friends, to tell your family members, to tell your coworkers, to tell your your neighbor, the, the ones that you know that aren't saved. He is patient, waiting around for you to tell them. That's what he's patient about. How are they going to know? about their own sin and and the Jesus that came out of heaven to to die for their sin and rescue them from all of what we're talking about? How would they know about it if you didn't tell? I don't know who they are, but you know who they are. What's he patient? He's patient for you to go tell somebody. You know somebody who, who isn't saved, don't you? I know you do. Who's that one person that's in your mind that you know, that you know that, Well, you're pretty sure at least. (laughs) You don't know their heart, but you're pretty sure you know that they've not put their faith and their trust in Jesus, that the Holy Spirit does not live inside of them, that they don't have the hope of eternity in heaven. Who's that person? Who is it? Think of who that person is for you. God is waiting around for you to go tell them, to at least give them an opportunity to put their faith and trust in Jesus. You, you know what the end of the world is going to, you know everything that's going to happen now. We'll add more pieces to the puzzle along the way, but you know everything that's going to happen. Jesus is going to come out of heaven and demolish the Antichrist and demolish all evil on planet earth and rescue those who have believed in him. Like the least you could do is like invite someone to church. I'll tell them, Okay. He is patient, waiting for you, waiting for, for you to go tell somebody about who Jesus is. And you're like, well, I don't know enough about you. I didn't, I didn't know anything about the, any of that stuff. You don't have to know about any of this stuff to go tell people about Jesus. If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, you know enough. If you could be saved, you would know enough so that someone else could be too. And this is why he's patient, because he wants them to go to heaven too. Now, there might be one or two in here today, you're like, oh, man, this is kind of making me a little nervous about Christians being taken off of planet Earth and seven years of tragedy on planet Earth with one final battle. And the reason that it makes you nervous is because you know that you're not going to heaven. Well, but this verse tells us that God wants you to go to heaven, too no matter what you've done, no matter what your past is like, no matter the, the, the evil that you've done. See, you didn't get struck by lightning when you came in this church building. You thought that that was going to happen to you. It didn't. The reason that it didn't is because he wants you to go to heaven before the lightning strikes you. <laughs> it's true. That's what this verse says. And so the word here is, he doesn't want anyone to perish. That is simply... Being in hell, separated from God forever because of our own sin. The Bible says that our sin separates us from God for all of eternity. And it says, but he wants them all to come to repentance. And repentance is just a word that means changing your mind about who Jesus is. Just... He wants you to change your mind about who Jesus is. Jesus is God that came out of heaven, lived a perfect life, never sinned one time, so that when he went to the cross, he died for your sin. Three days later, he came back alive again, proving that he is God, and he is in heaven today, and he is willing to wash away the sin, forgive the sin. It's not that it didn't happen. It did happen. Jesus had to die on the cross for it to happen. But he will forgive it. He will wash it away so that then you can have the hope of eternity in heaven too. That is who Jesus is as our savior. He rescues us from hell because we put our faith and trust in his death, in his resurrection. And so maybe you need to do that today. Maybe you're that person who's a little afraid because you know that you wouldn't go to heaven if all of this happened today. But you can have the confidence of knowing that today that you would go to heaven. that's simply by repenting, by changing your mind about who Jesus is. So I'm going to give all of you the opportunity to consider these things. There are two things that we're considering. If you're a believer, there are probably some things, there's a person in your mind who you need to go tell something about Jesus so that they could at least have the opportunity to change their mind. And there might be one or two of you in here who want to change your mind today right now. And so I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that. Would you all be willing to bow your heads and close your eyes? Let's create a little separation between you and the person next to you for just a minute. That's what bowing our heads and closing our eyes does. Prayer happens in our heart. It doesn't happen out loud. It doesn't have to happen out loud. God knows what's on your mind. He knows your intentions. And so in the quietness of your own heart, if you know that you need to be saved, if you want to go to heaven and you know that your sins have separated you from him, from God, but you need your sins forgiven, here's what you could say to God. In the quietness of your own heart, God knows what's on your mind. You could say this, Dear God, I I believe what that pastor said about who Jesus is. I believe that that Jesus is God. I believe that that He came to earth and lived a perfect life. And so that when He went to the cross, He wasn't dying for His sin, but He was dying for mine. I believe that Jesus paid my fine on that cross. I believe that He rose from the grave I believe that he is in heaven today listening to my prayer. And I put my faith and my trust and my belief in, in this Jesus. I repent. I change my mind about who Jesus is. He is my Savior. I put my belief, I put my eternity, I, I put my life into his hands. With your head still bowed and your eyes still closed, um, most of you are believers here today and God is patient toward you waiting for you to tell the person that you know that isn't saved. And so, I know that's weird and kind of awkward and you don't know what to say, but someone told you. And so now, as a believer, you go tell someone else, okay? And so, here's a prayer of, uh, of commitment to God regarding that. Here's what you could say to God, and only say it if you mean it, don't repeat me. But if you mean this, you could say, Dear God, I I'm sorry that I haven't told this person. Name their name. God knows who it is. He wants them saved. You do too. God, I'm sorry I haven't said anything to this person. I pray that you would give me the the guts. Give me the words. Pray that your Holy Spirit would would give me wisdom and the time and the place would create a space for me to tell them about what I know about Jesus so that they would have the opportunity to put their faith and trust in Jesus too. Well, dear God, I thank you for your promises. I thank you for the rock that you have not forgotten your people and that you always keep your promises. And for that, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.